10th was the church I first attended when I uh, came to Vancouver, and so it's, it's lovely to be able to be back. Uh, I hold many fond memories here. Let's read from 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 3 to 9. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night. There are a number of stories I remember hearing as a child in Sunday school. David and Goliath, Noah and the Ark, Jesus feeding 5,000 people with bread uh, and a few loaves, a few loaves and a few fish. But I don't remember the story of Elijah being fed by an angel after running away and feeling depressed being among the Sunday school stories I was taught. It certainly wasn't one of the ones that was regularly repeated year after year. And if I was taught it, I overlooked it. And yet, the more time I spend with this portion of scripture as an adult, the more precious it becomes. Because of the beauty of who it reveals about who God is, what God cares about, and what God does. My hope is that in the next little while as we spend some time looking at this story and others in scriptures, that we would be drawn in by the beauty of Christ. And as we contemplate together the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not only would God speak to us through his word and enable us to delight and experience more who God is, but that our time with this story in scripture would be like a prism brimming with light sending forth its beams to illuminate the fabric and complexity of our lives, that we may have our eyes opened and our hearts awakened to our own experience of God's presence, care, an invitation in our present circumstances. Let's pray to that end. Gracious and loving God, thank you that not only are you the God who sees and cares, but you help us see. And so, this morning, we ask that you would do just that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to be at work in our hearts as we bear witness to your care for Elijah and others in the story of Scripture. Open our hearts and minds and help us to see just how wonderful you are, that we may delight in you and continue to be transformed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit we pray. Amen. What's intriguing about this account in 1 Kings 19 is that it comes right on the heels of a story that actually did make it into Sunday school's curriculums. 
It's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Baal was the god of the Sidonians. And there was a king called Ahab, who scripture tells us was one who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, much more so than any other king before him. And in addition to the injustices that Ahab committed, he married Jezebel, a Baal worshiper. And after they were married, he led Israel away from worship of the creator God to worship of Baal. And what precedes the account that we heard today is a very significant showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal to determine who was the living God. And so both groups were to prepare a sacrifice, and the God who responded by igniting that sacrifice with fire was to be considered the real God. God would respond, uh, and Elijah was so confident that God would respond that he had an altar prepared, the altar that he prepared drenched with water. Now, we're not going to look at this story in detail today, except to say that Yahweh, the God of Israel, responded with a massive demonstration of power. The fire fell, and not only was a sacrifice burnt up, but actually the whole altar as well. I wonder how Elijah felt to have had God so powerfully answer his prayer. The outcome of this big confrontation is that the prophets of Baal are killed, and Jezebel, their queen and patron, issues a threat against Elijah, saying she's going to take his life. And Elijah is afraid. He runs for his life and then isolates himself by leaving his servant behind. All alone, Elijah is overwhelmed and incredibly discouraged, and he prays that God would take his life. Then, likely exhausted, he lies down and falls asleep. Now, if you were to read more of Elijah's stories, you would find God's presence and action in the life of Elijah is actually a reoccurring pattern. While the showdown between the prophets of Baal and uh, Elijah may have been one of Elijah's most dramatic experiences with God, God has not been absent in Elijah's life. In fact, Elijah had a history of God's presence and care in his life. And as the confrontation with the prophets of Baal show, Elijah had great confidence in God. But he lost that confidence. And he got overwhelmed by fear, speaking the words, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. I wonder if one of the things Elijah was dealing with in that moment was deep disappointment of himself. Feeling afraid, yet feeling like he shouldn't feel afraid and should be able to trust. Or maybe it was that he could easily imagine God doing a great miracle and burning up the altar to reveal himself to the people of the land, but he struggled to imagine how God could expend energy and time caring for his own personal needs and safety. How does God respond to Elijah's despondency? Does God shame Elijah or send a prophet to Elijah to give a sermon and remind him of God's faithfulness? God sends an angel who touches Elijah and then says only four words, get up and eat. And there by Elijah's head is some bread that has been baked in a jar of water. Elijah then lies down again, and after a while, the angel comes and touches him again and says, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. God knows 
when the journey is too much. And God's response to Elijah, who's become troubled and afraid, is to give him time and rest and to provide him with good meals. Not inviting Elijah to binge or feed a food addiction, but providing Elijah with food that would nourish him and help him continue. I think the first few times I heard this story, it seemed unusual to me. It didn't seem to fit with how I expected God would respond. What happens next in the story of Elijah is that God meets Elijah in a cave and they have a conversation and God encourages him. And this makes a lot more sense to me as a good solution. Give Elijah a new perspective, open his eyes to what he can't see and remind Elijah of the truth. But that's not God's first response to Elijah. God's first response is to provide rest and good food. I think there was something within the Christian culture I grew up with that led me to believe that God really cared about my spirit, that my walk with God and God's care for me was all about what I, I thought and what I believed about God and what I did for God as a result of those beliefs. Being a healthy Christian meant making sure I prayed regularly, read scripture, and went to church. It was not as concerned with things like eating regularly or getting good rest. And this is interesting because there's actually so much that needs to be overlooked in the story of scripture to be able to arrive at these conclusions. Even beyond the story of Elijah, there is so much in scripture that reveals to us a God whose care for us is so thorough and has always been so thorough. It's care that has always included our social well-being, our physical well-being, our psychological well-being, and of course, our spiritual well-being. In fact, these aspects are all interconnected. They affect one another. Why else would we be talking about the time and energy God takes to provide meals for someone in a series on the gospel and mental health? The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation reveal to us a God who has always cared about every aspect of our humanity but we've often overlooked the scope of God's care for us, and that has had grave repercussions. If we have come to the conclusion that God only cares about our spirit, and that is where God invests his time and energy and care, then as followers of the living God, where are we going to invest our time and energy and care? If we believe that certain aspects of our humanity, our bodies and our physical and social needs are not worth God's attention, how much of our attention will they get? Part of our time today will be spent paying attention to what God cares about and how God extends his care to us throughout scripture. And we'll take a look at the gifts of companionship, limits, meals, rest, and life-giving truth. But before we do that, a note about what I mean, what I'll mean when I use the term self-care. I think that in many Christian circles, one of the things that we're trained and encouraged to be, uh, or not to be, and rightly so, is we're, we're trained not to be selfish. Uh, when we put ourselves at the center of everything, we cut ourselves off from the rivers of love. Not only do we end up harming our, others through our selfishness, but we can end up harming ourselves as well. 
Selfishness is a path that leads to greed, exploitation, deception, and corruption. But Jesus has invited us to another way. Not a selfish way. It's a way of life that is marked by humility, gentleness, kindness, and sometimes sacrifice. So then, what about self-care? With the word self in it, it might seem like a pretty close cousin to selfishness. And I can imagine that there are ways that you could engage in self-care that are selfish and destructive and perhaps not care at all. And so for the purposes of this morning, I'd like to offer a particular definition of self-care, and that's this. Self-care is our participation in God's care for us. Self-care is our participation in God's care of us. One of the things that those who follow Jesus profess is that God is alive and at work in the world, bringing his shalom. God is currently at work so that one day his peace, his wholeness, and his wellness will flood the whole cosmos in every capacity. And although there is a, a day when this will happen in a very final and complete way so that there will be no more tears, illness, death, pain, or war, etc., God is currently at work in the world, in our lives, and in our hearts, for the good of everyone, bringing his shalom. Followers of Jesus are invited to participate with Jesus in what he's doing in our world. And I know that the 10th community here gets this. You don't have to look far to see all sorts of collaboration with God and what he's doing in the world. Oasis, life groups, refugees, Cambodia, these are all ministries that provide avenues to participate with God in what God is doing. But it's not to be overlooked that one of the places God is at work bringing his wholeness and shalom is in us. God cares about us. God is at work caring for our physical, social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. And we, in response to what God is doing, can engage in self-care so that we can participate with God in what God is doing in our lives for healing and for wholeness. Think about it. God provided bread and water, but Elijah needed to eat and drink. Elijah desperately needed rest, but he still needed to lie down. Not just with Elijah, but from the beginning, God has invited us into a partnership where we not only care for others and the earth, but we care for ourselves as well. In Genesis 1, the story of creation unfolds, and we hear that God has made humanity in his own image. Male and female together are created in the image of God. And in the garden, before sin enters into the picture and humanity experiences the fall, we can see God's care for Adam and Eve. Not only does God give them food to eat from seed-bearing plants and fruit trees, but God gives Adam and Eve the gift of companionship. Not just with each other, but also with God. God was in regular conversation with them. And God also gave them the gift of good limits. There are things that were good for them and things that were not good for them. And while one of the first limits that comes to mind may be the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that they were instructed not to eat, there is actually another limit that shows up before that. 
When God creates Adam before he creates Eve, God says that it's not good for Adam to be alone. One of our God-given or God-created limitations as human beings is that it's not good for us to be alone. We were created for community. It's not that time alone for us isn't good or that we're never to be alone, but rather that companionship is part of what we need to flourish. Just as plants need light, water, and good soil in order to thrive, so also is companionship one of the essential components we need to live as humans. Good relationships and companionship are both God-given expressions of God's care for us and the reality of our limitations as human beings. We don't do well when we're not alone. It's why to this day, one of the harshest punishments given to inmates in high-security prisons is solitary confinement. Sometimes when we're not doing well, our instinct may be to pull away, to retreat, cut ourselves off. But it's in these very times that companionship may be what we most need. Certainly, Elijah needed companionship. If you were to continue with the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, you would find that one of the very next ways that God cares for Elijah is to provide him with an apprentice, Elisha. Elisha will not only learn from Elijah and become Elijah's successor when it comes time for Elijah to retire, but for the rest of the time that Elijah continues to partner with God in what he's doing, Elisha is going to be his companion. We can look to God for wisdom, guidance, and provision in our relationships. Not only does God care that we have sustenance through food and companionship, but God cares about our rest. Elijah needed to stop and sleep. When we think of God's care for us, one of the things God has done in, is create regular rhythms of rest for us by giving us the Sabbath. The creation account tells us that after God finished his work of creation on the seventh day, he rested. The very first being ever to practice setting aside a day of rest was completely without sin. An eternal community of Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in each other and their creation on the seventh day. If we, who are made in the image of the trying community, and if the, the trying community not needing rest decided that it would be good to set aside one day in seven to delight in what they had created, what does that say about us who are made in the image of God? What kind of rhythms are good for us? Do we need regular patterns of stopping and setting aside time to take it all in? It's interesting. If you were to continue through Genesis to the book of Exodus and pause in chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, there you would find a community called together by God, learning what it meant to be God's people by learning to rest through the practice of Sabbath. And yet, the Sabbath was about so much more than rest. Sabbath was also about this new community understanding who they were as the people of God and who God was. Exodus means departure, and the Israelites had been freed from God, uh, freed by God through his servant Moses from generations of slavery and abuse. And the Sabbath was given to the Israelite people to help them learn that they were no longer slaves, 
It was to help them separate emotionally, physically, and psychologically from the culture of slavery and lean into the reality that they were no longer slaves, but beloved children of God. The Sabbath was also given to the Israelite people to help them learn that God was not a taskmaster. He wasn't ruling over their lives, driving them ruthlessly. Rather, God was caring for them. They could afford once every week to release the work of their hands into the care of a God that loved them and trust that their concerns would be cared for. They could afford once every, sorry, letting go, stopping and pausing and releasing control is one way we can confess in our actions and circumstances that we are not at the center of things. We can stop. We can choose to stop because we trust God's action and God's care. So then Sabbath was not just a place of rest, but also a place of reorientation and a place of courage. Friends, it often takes courage, energy, and planning to practice Sabbath. And yet I'm convinced that the one who knows best what we need for self-care knew what he was doing when he offered this gift to us. And what I have found is that the place of rest provided in the Sabbath has been one of the places that has strengthened and equipped me to partner with God in the other areas of my life with regard to self-care. Jesus invited all those who were weary and heavy laden to him to come to him and to find rest. And Sabbath keeping can not only be a place where we can more fully enter into that rest that Jesus talked about, but it can also be a place where we can experience the joy of learning what it means to take Jesus' light and uh, easy yoke upon us, to have God partner with us in the work that God has given us to do. I remember partway through my studies at the University of Ottawa feeling quite worn out. The scholastic demands were heavy, and I had a music uh, history prof who felt that in order to keep the standards of the university up, he needed to fail at least 20% of our class. And I had also become quite involved with the church youth group, and I was helping out with the worship team at church on a regular basis, and it was buzzing back and forth from place to place, doing all these things, waking up super early to finish homework and staying up late to finish homework. And I started to feel really unwell. I was getting these chest pains that would come suddenly, and they were like paralyzing and very sharp. And they would come suddenly and frequently, and I also um, started to lose weight. And I started wondering if something was wrong with me. And so one Sunday after church, I decided to go up for prayer, and I approached a gentle, kind, wise leader who I knew, expecting him to pray for me. And I was caught totally off guard when after listening to me share, he kind of looked at me for a while and then said, have you been observing the Lord's Sabbath, taking a day and seven to rest? And I was like, no. <laughs> and he looked at me and he's like, will you? And I was a little bit stunned. I said, yes. <laughs> at that time, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know how good it was going to be for me physically, spiritually, and psychologically. But it was the beginning of a number of significant changes in my life. The first being that within two to three weeks, 
all the chest pains were gone. Not only that, but God helped me. The workload didn't decrease, and so sometimes I would have to choose which assignment I would plan to hand in late, um, or what tests I would not study as much for. But it was uncanny between professors getting sick and pushing due dates back, or last-minute extensions being given to the whole class, how Jesus shepherded through me through that time and helped me to do well. I began to learn firsthand that God cared about the practical, physical details in my life, and that Jesus cared about my rest, and that if I would trust Jesus with resting, Jesus would help me in very practical ways with the other matters. Resting on the Sabbath has also helped, been helping me to learn to take rest at other times when it's needed, as Jesus did. Have you ever noticed that Jesus got tired? Not only do we have the account of Jesus falling asleep in the boat while there's a storm and his disciples are there, but in the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the scriptures tell us that while the disciples were out getting supplies, Jesus was sitting at the well because he was tired from the journey. Jesus had grace for himself and his limitations and chose to rest while the rest of the team was working. And God was at work in it all. Jesus might not have had the conversation with the woman at the well had he not stopped and acknowledged his need for rest. God can use our rest, and God can speak to us in our rest. Years later, although as a pastor I take rest on a different day than, of the week than Sunday, Sabbath remains a day where I am reminded, among other things, that God cares for the bits and pieces of my life. And I can leave them in his hands. God cares for me, even when it comes down to things like eating. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus cares that people eat? Uh, when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, God cared for them not just by making sure their clothes did not wear out, but also by seeing that they had food and water. And Jesus is no different. Jesus never just cared about feeding people spiritually. When he was out in the deserts and the crowd followed him to a deserted place, he said to his disciples, where shall we uh, buy bread for all these people to eat? And then he miraculously provides bread for them. And when Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, the very first words he says after he raises her as she's resurrected is, Give her something to eat. When Jesus shows up to his disciples after the resurrection, they're out fishing, and Jesus cooks a meal for them on a charcoal fire, and he says, come and have breakfast. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is preaching to the crowds, and he tells them not to worry about what they will eat or drink or what they will wear, and he says this, not because these things don't matter or that they're not important, Yes, those who follow Jesus aren't to get fixated on these things, but they're not to worry about them because God, their good Father, knows what they need and will take care of them by providing these things for them. That's why they can't worry, or they're not to worry. God's going to take care of it. Dialoguing with God, seeking God's help and wisdom about things like our food and our clothes, can lead us down paths of self-care that are for our flourishing, 
whether that means giving more of our time and resources towards things like meals and clothes, or whether that will mean buying less clothes or eating less, or choosing foods that are better quality, or humbling ourselves and asking for the help that we need, like talking to a site pastor to get support for things like clothing or food. Dialoguing with God about self-care may even include things beyond the scope of what we're talking about this morning, like changing our exercise habits or finding a new hobby. If you're wondering about who cares about whether or not you have enough to eat or that you do eat regular nourishing meals or that you have clothes to wear, I have good news for you. God cares. Jesus cares. And Jesus cares not just enough to feel compassionately towards you, but to act compassionately towards you. Would you consider joining God in his care for you? Would you consider regarding yourself with the same love, care, and compassion that Jesus extends to you? And perhaps here we come to what can be one of the most difficult parts, regarding ourselves with the love and compassion that Jesus does. One of the things that Elijah discovered when he had the conversation with God in the cave was that his perceptions of God's lack of care for him and his perception of what was going on around him, that perception was distorted. In fact, Elijah wasn't alone, and God was taking care of him. And Elijah needed a revelation of God's truth, and he was invited to acknowledge and receive God's truth for his well-being. The invitation to receive God's truth, to look on ourselves with the love and compassion that Jesus does, to hold on to the words of Jesus regarding who we are and how he cares for us. This is an invitation that is extended to every single one of us. I had some experiences with racism as a young child in elementary school, which had a significant negative impact on me for quite some time. Uh, when an authority figure I had trusted treated me as if I wasn't worth talking to, as a young child who didn't know any better, I concluded that the problem was with me. There was something wrong with me, and she was justified in the way that she was treating me. This took me down a path of self-hatred. I believed and thought all kinds of untrue things about myself, that I was of little or no value, that I was ugly, that I had nothing to contribute, etc. And at age 12, Jesus interrupted that path. I was at a youth retreat. Someone prayed for me at the end of it. I don't remember all of what they said, but I do remember being hit with this incredible sense that God wanted to work through me. I had no idea how he could. By this time, I had a fear of people, and I struggled to have conversations with those outside of my family, especially adults and I had a lot of difficulty maintaining eye contact. I remember getting home, curling up in a corner and crying and telling God that I didn't know how he could work through me or even with me, but that if he wanted to, he could try. 
This was a significant turning point in a healing journey God has been shepherding me through to this day. In John 10, Jesus says that he is a good shepherd and that his sheep hear his voice and they run from the voice of the stranger. But as I became more and more aware of what Jesus thought of me and how he cared for me, I realized that his voice wasn't the only voice I was listening to. Sometimes I was listening to the voice of the stranger, even repeating the words of the stranger to myself. For a time, it was much easier for me to believe that I was worthless rather than a precious daughter of God. And the way I thought about myself and talked about myself in the presence of others reflected that. Two of the most important self-care challenges I believe Jesus extended to me was first, to commit to as best as I could whenever I realized that there was an opportunity to receive and to repeat Jesus' life-giving truths over my life, whether I felt like I could agree with them or not. And second, whenever I noticed the voice of the stranger, to refuse to embrace it or echo it. I'm holding in my hand some pieces of paper that are about 14 to 16 years old. They fell out of a cupboard some months ago when I was looking for something, and when I saw them, I thought it might be good to revisit them. They have words on them like seen, placed, cherished, not alone, not forgotten. And so every few days or so, I'll pick up one or two of them and say a short prayer. But there was a point in my life where these words were one of the lifelines I was returning to daily, going through them all on a regular basis, asking God to help me receive their truth. This was one way I was invited to hold on to Jesus' truth through the invitation of a fellow believer. But there are others. Perhaps sometime later this week in a life group or with a trusted friend or in your journal, you could reflect on ways that Jesus has, has and is inviting you to hold on to and receive his truth in your heart. Holding on to Jesus' truth and resisting the voice of the stranger was a slow trickling stream of healing in my life, which over time God has turned into a flowing river. We can participate with Jesus, in Jesus' care for us by thinking and speaking his truths about ourselves to ourselves and resisting the lies that can so often come disguised as our own thinking or other powerful voices in our lives. Why do we need self-care? Because sometimes the journey is too much for us. God is the one we can go to for wisdom regarding self-care and recovery because God will always be interested in caring for our whole person, and so can we. The God who provided for Elijah in the midst of his fear and depression is the one who cares for us. We can participate with God in caring for ourselves by paying attention to things like companionship, limits, rest, meals, and our own self-regard. With God's help, we can learn to listen to the voice of Jesus 
and join him in speaking life-giving truths to ourselves and to others so that we may all flourish to God's glory. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we're thankful this morning for who you are. Thankful that you're a God who cares for us and who calls us to join you in that care. Lord Jesus, this morning, we ask for your forgiveness. We have not always cared for ourselves or others in the ways that you have invited us to. And so we ask you now for your help. Even now, in this moment, Lord, we ask that you would give each one a word of your life-giving truth over them whether it be cherished, placed, celebrated, loved. Lord God, we welcome you to do your work among us and to do only what you can do. In your name we pray, amen.